The following audio drama is rated R for rockin'. You can be sure that everything you wanted to see when you're a teenager is here. Just tantalizingly out of reach if you're under 17 or 18 years old. Hi, this is John Ossip, the composer and game master for Worlds Away. Worlds Away is an actual play storytelling podcast where five close friends use role-playing games to create new worlds with our listeners. The episode you're about to hear is titled The Minerva Project and is the first episode of our initial season, Convergence. This season takes place 250 years in our future as humanity begins exploring the galaxy. After a conflict between Earth's unified republic and its settlements on other planets, four citizens of Earth will lead the Minerva Project, a mission to reunite humanity and protect a hard-earned peace. But as their journey begins, the crew learns their true mission and faces a threat to our future among the stars. I'm really proud of this episode and how it introduces you to our four main characters, their backgrounds, and their secrets. If you like it as well, you can find the rest of the show, including a setup episode, by searching for Worlds Away right here in your podcast app. Thanks a ton for listening, and I hope you enjoy the adventure. And God said, Let us make humans in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and over all the tame animals, and over all the wild animals, and over every other creature that lives in this galaxy. Damn Abbeys are crawling all over here. How are you doing on air, Johnson? Still showing too green. Good. I think it's just over this hill. Chief. Come take a look at this. Have you ever seen so much of it? No. Never. Wait. What is it? There's... There's something else.
Welcome to Worlds Away, an actual play storytelling podcast. I'm your game master, John Ossip, and here with me are Haley Daria. Hello. Lauren Woolbanks. Hot damn. Michael Morales. Hey. And Moshitara. Hey, y'all. All All right, folks. I got to tell you, I am pumped. It's happening. And we are here for episode number one of our very first season, which we are calling Convergence. So, yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in for this. I should also mention that uh, we're going to be playing a game called Impulse Drive, which was written by Adrian Toon. So shout out to Adrian for making a really awesome game um, and, and just really excited to start playing that. Before we go any further, though, when I said this is our first episode, I kind of lied there. And that's because we actually have a setup episode, which we've kind of described here as episode zero. If you haven't already listened to the setup episode, I'm not saying that you have to do that, but you should really go do that. Um, And that's because we talk a lot more about the world of Convergence. Uh, We talk about the game we're going to be playing, and we also introduce everyone's characters. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, go ahead and check that out right now on our feed. But because I'm sure there's at least one person out there who didn't listen to me, uh, maybe let's go around right now and just remind folks who we're going to be playing in this season. So just the kind of 20-second version, uh, maybe just your character's name in your playbook. So, Lauren, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, uh, I will be playing Mara Belova, uh, and she is the intellect. Awesome. Mike? I'll be playing Arno Hines, and he is uh, the warhorse. Excellent. Haley? My character's name is Leela Malik, and she is the mystic. And Mo. Uh, hello, everybody. My name, uh, my character's name is Nasir Baydak, and uh, we're going to be a custom playbook called The Icon. Awesome. All right, y'all. I think it's time. Are we ready for this? No. Let's do Perhaps. it. Right. Not ready. Let's Fuck kick it me off. up, fam. All right. We see a video screen floating in the center of the frame with nothing else in the shot. On that screen is a popular news anchor on Earth who is sitting at her desk. The year is 2275, and this is the night that everything starts to change. The woman has dark brown skin, curly hair that dips just below her shoulders, and round glasses that she pushes up along her nose. From off camera, we see the hands of an assistant making the final adjustments to her microphone, returned with a thankful smile from the news anchor, as she reads over her opening lines. As the cameras begin rolling, the anchor makes a couple of taps on a glass slate resting on the desk in front of her, and then she looks up into the camera and begins. After months of anticipation, we are just moments away from learning the four names that could change the course of humanity's future. I'm Kara Jones, here with you live for RBC One. After the signing of the Armistice and the end of the Aventine Rebellion, the rest of humanity's colonies in The Verge will soon face a choice. To either rejoin with Earth as equal members of the Republic, or to remain divided as independent planets, perhaps even forming an opposing alliance with Aventine. Here on Earth, Evelyn Lee was elected on a promise to end the war. But over the past year, former President Torres' support in the polls has grown as the Verge slips further away from reunification. In a last-ditch effort to save the vote for unity, 
or according to some, to save her own political future, President Lee has decided to send four representatives of Earth into The Verge. Their mission? To provide aid and support to our former colonies and prove to them the value of the Republic. President Lee calls it a message of peace. Aventine calls it a provocation. And Nico Torres calls it a political stunt. But whatever it is, the entire planet has been waiting to learn the names of Earth's four ambassadors to the stars. I want to bring in the panel now. Mark, break down for us what we should expect from the crew of the Minerva Project. At this point, the broadcast kind of fades out, and we turn to the four of you. Tonight is the night that the crew of the Minerva Project, your crew, is being announced. So Nasir, I'm going to start with you. What are you doing on this last night before everything changes? I am doing everything in my power to not pay attention to the announcement. So I am in a swanky bar uh, trying to meet someone and have a quick drink. Awesome. And do you want to describe the bar a little bit for me? Just a quick drink or... Uh, I ideally there will only be a quick drink <laughs> happening in the bar. Um, there we go. So I think the bar is um, it's an older bar uh, by the standards of the modern day. So it's probably you know twenty second century bar. It's uh, very much an era where exposed brick was still a thing, although we don't use uh, brick anymore. Uh, and so uh, we were sitting. It's like a, a relatively low lit bar. Uh, glass countertop, which is like a black glass bar stools all along it. There are sort of uh, these like steel frame tables along the side uh, outside, like away from the bar itself for folks who want to sit down. And it's got sort of screens behind the bar above where all the, the drinks are kept that is playing the announcement, the announcement of the Minerva project. Awesome. Yeah. So we, I think we kind of see the, like the news anchor talking kind of continued, but you know, in the, in the movie cut of this, like the volume is, is kind of reduced on the TV and we kind of just hear the noise of the bar. Do you want to describe what Nasir looks like for us kind of sitting uh, at this bar stool? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm a very well put together guy. So I have like a, a casually striking appearance. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I would probably draw looks. I'm pretty attractive. I look to be like no older than 30. I've got a sharp chiseled features, a strong brow, well-defined jawline, very clean cut classically tall, dark and handsome. Uh, so tan skin, dark and wavy, very well kept black hair, medium length styled just a little. Um, my beard is short, but it's full. It's neatly trimmed and sharply lined up to frame my killer jawline. Uh, <laughs> my, my eyes are very expressive. They're deep set. They're warm. They're inviting. They look green from a distance, but if you get close, you can see that right around the iris, there's actually a dark, brown color that sort of fades into green and there are little flecks of gold in them. Uh, I've got two small silver band ear cuffs on the top and right side of my right ear. Uh, and on my left hand, the pinky and ring finger from my wrist to my fingertips are dyed a deep reddish purple. So sort of like a mulberry color. I'm of medium semi-muscular build, just under six feet tall. I have a very like confident poised but relaxed demeanor and like my energy is very much casual but confident 
I exude like sophistication and charisma. Like I, I hold attention when people, when I want it. Um, and often when I don't, uh, so what I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm wearing like a very crisp black shirt, very understated top two buttons undone showing a little bit of chest hair. Um, and I've got like matching sharp black suede boots, uh, like Chelsea boots and like clean khaki slacks. I'm, kind of half standing, half sitting on a stool right at the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and despite the fact that I already have a drink and I'm clearly in the middle of conversation with someone, I still have my like long tan like raincoat on and like a, a scarf that's like blue and green iridescence sort of fading into each other. And you can't really tell if I have just arrived or if I'm about to leave, but like it doesn't look like I've quite settled in. Gotcha. Well, sitting at the bar stool next to you is Garrett Holden. Um, he has dark skin, just shy of six feet tall, so about the same height as you, Nasir, and uh, maybe in his late 30s. He's wearing, uh, for his part, a, a well-tailored suit uh, with no tie, and his mouth is outlined by just the slightest hint of a stubble. And Nasir, I got to ask you now, how long is it that you have known Garrett Holden? Um, about 20, maybe 15 minutes. Okay, Awesome. And how did you introduce yourself to him? Uh, I introduced myself as like a, a local, uh, someone who like lives around here. And I probably just walked up to him after getting a drink and said, um, so uh, do you frequent the spa? Awesome. And did you nice. use your real name? Uh, I would not have told him my name unless he asked for it. And he doesn't actually seem like the type of guy who's super interested in that. Uh, as long as I've like giving him sort of details and praise. Uh, so we haven't actually, I, I, he hasn't asked my name. Okay. So I think then we kind of cut and he's like in the middle of talking. It's that kind of thing where it's like, as the camera pans over to you or pans over to you, it, it kind of fades in and we hear him speaking and he's like, and that's when he said, if you're going to gamble, always make sure you're doing it with other people's money. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. The guy was an asshole. But what a legend, right? Um, uh, absolute yeah. legend, of course. Uh, Anyone? Yeah, good. I was just going to say, I am, as we, he is talking, I'm sort of circling the rim of my glass with the pinky of my left hand, my dyed hand. Okay. Um, it's a little too fast to be casual, uh, but it's like not flirtatious. It's very much like a, like a nervous tick. Like a tick. Okay. Yeah. So I think he goes and he says, um, anyway, what about you? You have to have some stories, right? Um, What is it that you do again? Oh, uh, a little of this, a little of that. Um, I'm I'm not very, uh, I'm not very much one for work. I need some details here. Come on. I have been almost entirely unemployed since I moved back from Aventine. It has been largely a a non-issue. So I I think when you say like move back from Aventine, his face kind of changes changes a little bit excuse me and he says um so oh i thought i recognized that tattoo on your hand isn't that an aventine thing uh as soon as he says that my left hand stops moving uh my fingers sort of splay a little bit over the glass and i sort of flex them uh and i uh pull my hand in front of myself and sort of hold it with my other hand and i'm like uh it's yeah it's an aventine thing it's it's just an old promise Hmm. wow man Aventine, that is very interesting. Um, when he says that, my yeah. eyes flick uh, in like a single motion. My eyes flick up to the television 
scan the bar and then land back on his face without like in like under a second yeah he so i I think he kind of like looks up at the screen also you know he might have followed your eyes he might have not um but he kind of turns to you and he says well maybe you can make sense of this whole thing for me then we've done so much for the verge we're still doing so much for them you'd think they'd understand that right um when he says that, I, I put sort of a, I force a smile onto my face and it doesn't quite reach mm. my eyes. Um, and I'll say, we have certainly uh, sacrificed a lot for The Verge, um, but I, I think there, this, you know, people feel a lot of different ways about a lot of different things. Mm. And I think at this point, we kind of hear the voice of the news anchor cut back through the conversations at the bar and you hear her say, Mark, I'm going to have to cut you off as we see President Lee walking up to the podium now. And on the screen, then we see the broadcast kind of cut away from the news desk to show a long hallway, which you recognize uh, Nasir as part of the presidency building in Montreal. Um, The hallway that is shown on the screen, it's uh, built out of sort of polished stone or concrete, but the entire left wall is a huge lattice of windows that kind of cuts into the building and extends up toward the floors above. Now, both sides of the hallway are flanked by these rectangular planter boxes with these manicured green shrubs spaced between deep purple orchids. And along the floor is a long blue carpet, which today um, is leading up to a podium before a crowd of eager reporters. Uh, And about 40 feet back from the podium we see a woman enter the hallway from a door on the right side. She has pale skin, shoulder-length black hair with the slightest wave on her left side, and piercing eyes, sort of so dark that they're almost black. She's wearing a light gray and stylish double-breasted suit, and on her left lapel is a small brooch that features the seal of the Republic. And as she's walking toward the podium, sort of back at the bar, Garrett catches this out of the corner of his eye and he sort of starts trying to get the attention of the bartender. And he's like, hey, could you uh, turn that up? When he says that, I immediately down the entirety of my drink, put my card on the bar, Mm -hmm. put my hand on his shoulder and are like, do you want to get out of here? My place is just around the corner. We we can be there in like a minute. And I think it's, it's just a little too loud to hear anything in here. Yeah. He says, um, no, I have to, I mean, this is so exciting, right? I mean, and, and I wouldn't want to miss this. I, I know it's all a bit of a stun, but this whole thing just kind of feels like a reality show, doesn't it? It really feels like something crazy happening to someone else. So back on the, on the TV at that point, Evelyn Lee kind of reaches the podium and after a brief pause, uh, she begins to speak. Good evening. Even four years after the armistice, the wounds from our war with Aventine are still raw. Every name on our memorials is a reminder of what the fighting cost us, and I will never forget what they sacrificed. Despite this pain, there are some who say we should still be fighting that war. That conflict with Aventine is not only the right path, but an inevitable one. Two centuries ago, our world was trapped in precisely this kind of bloodshed. 
Fueled by our divisions and our greed, the wars of the 21st century reached nearly every corner of this planet. But through all of the grief our ancestors endured, humanity came to understand a fundamental truth. We are only strong when we are united, when we care for each other, when we believe in each other, when we work together for the common good. These are the founding principles of our republic. With the birth of the republic, we saw the incredible things that humanity can achieve. In just a few decades, we discovered Lustra, our key to the stars. We set off for new worlds. We built cities where none had walked before. We even found life in the cosmos. All of this was possible because humanity was united. But for all that we have gained so far, over the past decade, this unity has been tested. Divided by distance, our siblings on Aventine began to question the importance of unity. And instead of proving to them what humanity could achieve as a collective, we responded with the threat of force. This may have been the Republic's greatest failure. It cost us countless lives. It took from us Aventine, our second home in the stars, and it pushed away the other colonies in the Verge. But now, we have the chance to set things right, to learn from our mistakes. We can show the people of the Verge that their best future lies not in division and in fear, but in unity and in peace. The crew of the Minerva Project will bring this message to the Verge, and with open arms, they will share the best of what makes our Republic great. It is now my privilege to announce the crew of the Minerva Project. Nasir, what do you do? Uh... I sort of stand up and start walking towards the front door of the bar. Just without, without, uh, Garrett, I leave, I, I ignore Garrett mostly. And I like leave my card on the bar and I just start walking away. I think he kind of turns to you and is like, wait, where are you going? And then you hear kind of like a murmur strike up at the bar. Do you look back at all? I stop and I look back when I hear the sounds. Yeah, so you look back, and I think you see... Well, I don't think anyone sees you yet, but on the screen, we see a picture of your face uh, appear in the kind of sidebar. And at the bottom of the screen, in the sort of lower third, you see that the text changes to say, Nasir Badak, political icon after family killed on Aventine, will return to The Verge. What do you do? I scan the bar with my eyes just to see sort of who's noticed how folks are reacting. Uh, And I try to slowly back towards the door without catching attention. Yeah, I think you. Well, let me ask you this, then. How far do you make it before you think somebody notices you? The center of the bar tops, because I was at the far end near the back. Yeah. So you make it about halfway to the door, and then I think people start saying, like, wait, you're, and, and turning to look at you, 
And then I think also Garrett, who was kind of like slow following you, like turns back and then realizes and he's like, oh, my God, it's your oh man. Um, and is just kind of like looking both shocked, but also like really impressed with himself. I once folks sort of start to notice before anyone can sort of move towards me in any way. I'll actually like I'll put my heels up and sort of balance on like the lower level of, or the lower like hitch of one of the bar stools uh-huh. just so I can like sort of address the room and I'd be like we're going to do amazing things to help the verge peace has always been our objective and helping our siblings across the stars is something that we we have an obligation to do and we will continue to do as long as there is a dream for the republic um Mel, if you'll all excuse me, I do actually have to hit the restroom. Uh, and I say that with like a bashful look on my face. Yeah. So I, I think when you say that and feel free to push back on this, but I guess like you're at this bar. I assume that like politically speaking, was it fair to say that this bar is kind of more aligned with the doves than the hawks or or vice versa? What are you kind of thinking about that? Yeah, I think so. This is a, a bar. Um, I think that I'm probably in Montreal right now. Okay. Uh, and so I think that this is a bar near ish to the capital, probably where, or where I would be on most days. And so like, it's a bar that I knew would be friendly, but would not have a lot of political figures, right? Like this is, this is where okay. most of like the business people would be mostly. Yeah. So I, I think you see probably there's a few people in the crowd that are like not enthused, but I, I think that most of the bar then is kind of like applauding and seems very excited by what you had to say. And I think if you're trying to make your way through the crowd to the bathroom, um, I think there are people like reaching out to kind of shake your hand or maybe to like, I think there's a lot of pictures being taken at this point. I think you're kind of starting to get a little dazed by the camera flashes. I, I will for every, I will, every hand that reaches out, I will grab and I will shake and I'll grab sort of in that way where you grab like at the, at the forearm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, put, and like clasp my hand around theirs. Like, I will lean in for every picture and I will smile um, somberly in a way that's like appropriate for, for who I am and what the story that they all know of me. Um, so it's not like, it's, I'm not like flashing a huge grin, but I'm flashing like a serious, like no teeth smile that like, we're going to do great things. Um, and I am like constantly moving closer towards the restroom. Yeah. So I think you eventually make it there and are able to sort of get in. You know, I think the bar staff is kind of um, (laughs) doesn't know how to react. And they're kind of shell shocked by the fact that this kind of descended upon them without any advance warning or notice. But, yeah, you make it into the bathroom. And I think, (laughs) you know, people respect you enough to, like, stay back and let the door close. Right. So now you're, you're in the in this bathroom alone. As soon as I have, like, locked the door for the bathroom the smile and like seriousness falls from my face. Uh, and I, I practically fall over the sink. I turn the water on so that it starts running immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. my hands are gripped on either side of the sink and I'm sort of bent over and all of my knuckles, except the ones that are dyed are like white with how hard I'm gripping the sink. Uh, and you just hear me breathing and Mm -hmm. I start splashing sort of water in my face. Um, I start tracing words on the mirror in water and wiping them off like in a very like I'm trying to center myself sort of ritual. And after maybe a minute or two of just it's going to be all right, it's going to be all right. I stand up and I just put my own hand on my shoulder and I give it like a like a squeeze 
Mm-hmm. And I look, look up into the mirror and my eyes are sort of bloodshot. So I, I wipe my face. I, I breathe. I count to 10. And I look up in the mirror and I'm just like, you can do this. Close my eyes. And when I open my eyes again, the look on my face is the exact look I walked into the bathroom with. So mm. there is a somber smile on my face. My eyes are locked forward, full of seriousness. And I turn straight spine back towards the door. I pause for just a second with my hand on the handle. And I open it quietly, but not like gingerly mm-hmm. um, to see if anyone is waiting right outside the bathroom. Yeah, so I, I don't think they're right outside, but I think several feet back, people see you walk out and the the pictures are already flashing again. At the first camera flash, my facade breaks and I turn away from the camera so they don't catch it and mm-hmm. I go out the back door. We see the outline of a tall steel and glass building standing a fair distance over the rest of the city skyline. And then we cut to the inside of that building and we see the inside of Mara's office. Lauren, do you want to describe what that looks like for us? So I think um, she has the size of what you'd imagine, like a a CTO, C-suite execs office. It's, you know, corner office, big windows, expansive amount of space. Um, On the right-hand side, you see a table perpendicular to the wall that can seat like 12 people. Um, There's four, uh, what we would call TVs, but I'm sure there's some sort of futuristic glass doohickey. Um, There's also kind of um, a, a service area where people can leave, keep food hot, produces coffee other beverages and stuff like that so a uh, kind of like all-encompassing all-nighter uh brainstorming area and then on the left hand side you see kind of like large cushy chairs and then surrounding this very intriguing centerpiece in the right in the middle it has um it's like a fireplace so it's like a, a gas um fueled fireplace uh, around that, there's like in in a circle around that, there's like somehow running water that has like sunken in and and, and moves. Uh, and then even more so around that, there's like growing grass. So this kind of area is very reminiscent of like a camp fireplace. And oh. then um, on that, yeah, on that left hand side, there's the expansive windows. And then if you look further back, of course, you see um, Mara's desk. Right behind her is a wall of growing sprouts um each like has a small box maybe like a foot by a foot all have various serial numbers or names inscribed underneath them and all in all it goes floor to ceiling there's maybe 100 150 of these sprouts right now uh however uh mara's sitting at her desk kind of furiously crunching numbers and going through paperwork um, there is one of the the TVs is on to uh, the news station. And so uh, Mara, just to describe her, she's um, maybe average height, pale skin, hair about shoulder length, curled very neatly at the end. Um, her face is what you would consider almost angular, not quite 
uh, sharp, but with light brown eyes and kind of like very, um, very serious look on her face most time. She, yeah, is, is of average build. Um, and she's, yeah, she's sitting back there kind of just um, rapidly moving through papers, occasionally kind of flicking her eyes up to the TV, but um, decidedly uh, busying herself at this moment. Gotcha. And I, I think like on the TV, just for a little additional flavor, it's like we see the moment when like Nasir's face pops up on the sidebar and, you know, that same kind of text that we saw at yeah. the bar um, a few moments ago. Yeah. How how long has Mara been in the office so far at this point? Uh, All day is an appropriate amount of time to register. Yeah. All day. Yeah. And are there like what are the signs of this? Uh, I actually don't. Think I think if you looked very closely, you might be able to see her her clothes were just slightly a little more wrinkled than they should be. You know, maybe her her eyeliner is slightly smudged. But in all, you would say, oh, this is like a, a very well put together looking businesswoman who perhaps just got off an airplane or something along those lines. Gotcha. So I think Mara is like typing away. I assume we see like wh- wh- what kind of stuff do we see on the screens? I guess yeah. just like I'm not looking for like two details, but just like some kind of visual description of like what you know what we'd see in the in the TV version of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think she has her her at least dual, if not tri monitor situation oh, yeah. because you know she's a high powered woman. Uh, she has to have more than one monitor. Um, I think one you see you know just like various like graphs and charts. You know some some green cells, some orange cells, some red cells. In the XLs, whatever the XL of the future is, uh, probably yeah. still XL, actually. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, you see, you know, maybe like profiles of individuals. There's like faces with basic write ups, um, individuals they have dealings with. And then maybe the third screen is just like, I don't know, something classic like a stock ticker or uh, I don't know, something along those lines. So I think we see Mara at the desk kind of uh, typing away at her at her keyboard or, or whatever kind of input devices uh, we have in the future. And um, after a few moments in the distance, we hear um, this kind of soft sound. It's like a shh. And then the sound repeats itself and it sounds like it's getting closer and closer. It's very mechanical. And you hear this shh, 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 shh. And then it gets very close and all of the lights and all of the electronics in your office cut out and your screens go blank. And you hear the sound continuing and you see the rest of the hallway going down the floor and it's like the whole floor has gone dark. I think she just kind of places her hands on the table in anticipation for the next few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh, if it's going to be a short outage, she will resume working. But if it gets any longer than that, she might get up and go do something else. Yeah. So I think you're standing there and I think I assume there's some kind of like emergency lights or maybe like phosphorescence that kind of lights the building a little bit. Prides of the kind of eerie What glow. I assume is that the the plants behind her are on a backup and have a backup of a backup. And so oh, they yeah. actually don't go out. So she's like okay. illuminated from behind, but oh, that's a dope. I like that shot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that happens, and I think you're waiting there, and however long you're waiting, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. I think she will go in her desk and open a drawer that mm-hmm. has uh, actual physical bound books, and she'll 
pull out um, uh, the Charles Darwin classic uh, on the origin of species or whatever it's called. And uh, and what are you doing with the book? You're trying to read it? Yeah, she'll go and like walk over to the kind of fireplace area that I described earlier and turn that on and uh, and sit and, and read by the fire. Yeah. I guess the question is, does the fireplace use any kind of electricity to turn on? No, I assumed it was uh, like like a biofuel gas powered. Okay. But I mean, we can. No, I mean, that's fine. I was just yeah. asking. So, yeah, gotcha. you can light it and you do that. Yeah. But I think after a few moments and you're, and you're just trying to like wait this out is what you're trying to do here. Just so I understand kind of what Mara's thought process is. Yeah. I mean, has this happened before? Is she used to this? I don't think this has ever happened before. Okay. Um, I think she'll give it perhaps 10 minutes, uh, actually not perhaps 10 minutes, 10 minutes on the dot. And then she will, um, she will go locate someone whose job it is to locate maintenance or to locate the person who locates maintenance. So I, I think what happens is a few minutes in though, you, you do hear something else, which is from the hallway or from somewhere outside your office. I, I think it's hard to mm-hmm. triangulate where this is coming from. You hear this kind of, I guess, like a creepy whisper sound is how I describe it. And it's kind of like, and that is what you hear. Hmm. Upon hearing that, she's going to first like lean closer into the fire. And she's going to be like, gas pressure acceptable range. And then set the book down, stand up, and walk towards the emergency light lit uh, reception area. I assume that's right outside of her office. Yeah. And open the door. So yeah, you open the door. And I mean, it's like, and when I say like there's emergency lights, I, I think it's like it's still dark. You know what I mean? It's just not pitch black. So you can see enough to like try to move. But yeah, you you walk out in the hallway and and again, it looks like the whole floor is dark and it's like eerily quiet. Well, I guess like what time, I assume it's like 8 p.m. or something. Yeah, or 9 at least. PM. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it's like it's still like eerily quiet on this floor, even for that time. Like you don't hear any cleaning staff. You don't hear any or like, you know, cleaning robots or whatever like is going on in, in the future. No Roombas. Um, you know, you don't hear anyone working late. Um, it's just kind of very dead quiet. And then maybe you hear that like spooky whispering sound kind of further in the distance. I think the, the, the first thing she'll do is walk over to the reception desk and like lift. There's some sort of phone device, Mm. lift that up to her ear and attempt to summon maintenance because she pays attention to the safety. um, Yeah. The safety protocol. Yeah, so you lift the the kind of comms of the phone, and it's dead. There's no sound on it, and it doesn't respond. Unusual. Um. So I think I think that she will make. I mean, they're really high up. I don't think she's gonna take the stairs. I think she'll head towards like the service elevator area. Okay, and I think I think there's kind of going out of the reception area that's near where your office is there's like a hallway that kind of leads toward the central atrium on the floor and that's where the elevators are and where you know if there were stairs i bet that there's at least a stairwell there too so you just want to kind of head down there or yeah i suppose yeah okay 
And are you doing anything like how is Mara like, can you describe kind of how she's moving down down this hallway? Like what what's she kind of looking like or how is she reacting to the situation? Yeah, I, I think at first it's um, maybe some maybe a slight irritation. Um, obviously, she had uh, many things to do before leaving on. Uh, she wanted to bring those to fruition. However, um, because of the sound, complete lack of anyone around, um, I think she's getting maybe increasingly more uh, concerned and, shall mm-hmm. I say, scared. And so just moving carefully, I guess, is kind of yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the idea. She's not, like, sneaking in any... Okay. Yeah. I guess, is she trying to, like... I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of, of... What are you, like, looking out for? Is there anything you're kind of trying to to determine at this point? I don't think she's trying to determine anything. I think she is intently listening um, yeah. and kind okay. of the the thing that she can hear the most is kind of the click of her heels loudly echoing yeah. into nothingness, it seems. Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's right. So, yeah, you move down the hallway and and you get to kind of a like a T split in the hallway where to the left, it kind of goes toward that kind of central atrium I mentioned, which is where the, the sort of elevators are and where the the stairs would be. And to the right, it's kind of like moving into another hallway that that continues around the sort of outer circumference of the of the building floor. And at this point, you hear louder, but you hear the whisper sound again. And I think it's hard to determine which side it's coming from. Which uh, portion of the hallway is more well lit? Is there is it about equal? I think it's about equal. Okay, so I think she'll move towards the exit. But okay. um, I think now she might quicken her pace and every now and then occasionally um, peek behind her. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think you're doing that and you get up to the door um, and I think it's this kind of set of double doors that leads into the the atrium area. And I think there's probably like frosted glass that's on either side. But, you know, again, it's it looks kind of dark in there also and so you can't really see like anything through the frosted glass but i think you hear like a fainter version of the whispering and it sounds like it's coming from inside the atrium but it's faint Mm. she's gonna stop and think a second about what could be going on uh she's gonna move forward she's less nervous now though Okay, but you're going to open the door? Yeah. So I think the second you open the door, you are blinded. And that is because all of the lights go on at once, and you hear, like, dozens of people yell, Surprise! Jesus fuck. And the entire atrium has been kind of transformed into an event hall. Um, So there are, like, round tables filled with food, there's kind of waiters like circling the room with uh, trays of hors d'oeuvres and um, a sort of large rectangular table with a, a trio of bartenders behind it. And hanging from the balcony that kind of goes down into this atrium, there's a huge banner that says, congratulations, Mara. And in the center of all of this is a round table with a giant cake that is fashioned into the very garish shape of a rocket. Yes. Uh, what does Mara do as she regains her sight? So, as she opened the door, she anticipated that this might be what was on the other side. Yes. Um, <laughs> knowing her, the 
president and CEO of Genesynth and his penchant for what she would consider non-sensory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So she has, as she opened the door, she's like got kind of a forced... Her, her, like, lips are in a line. They're, like, yeah. vaguely smiling. She has crinkles on the edges of her eyes. And I think anyone looking at her who knows her well enough would know that she's a little perturbed. Um, but to everyone else, it just kind of seems like, oh, a serious person has been surprised. Excellent. <laughs> so I think as you're regaining your vision, indeed, you do see a man walking up to you who you immediately recognize as Nolan Callahan, uh, CEO of Genesynth. And he's kind of um, about six feet tall. He has light skin, sort of dirty blonde, almost brown hair that's sort of parted to the side and brushed back a little bit. He has like a young look to him. It's And it seems like he's kind of always at least half smiling, um, sort of no matter what the circumstances. But he also has these intense kind of gray eyes that it seems like you can make out from almost any distance across the room. So just like with this like purpose and mission to them. Um, and to clarify... He's hot, right? Yes, yes, okay. yes. Uh, he's got some some good looks. All of um, us. He walks up and, yeah. and he says, um, Mara, it looks like you just walked in on your own funeral. What's going on? So at, at this point, like when she locks eyes with uh, Nolan, um, she fixes her face into just like a somewhere between like a coy smile and a grimace. And she looks at him but then looks past him and she starts making eye contact with each of the individuals that you know there's accounting and then there's like IT and she's like politely waving and then kind of out of the corner of her mouth she's like when will this torture end do you (laughs) deride no enjoyment in life other than making me suffer he like full belly laughs as if you're being sarcastic about this and is like, uh, and I think he kind of turns back to you and says, come on, Mara, lighten up. This is going to be a fun celebration. Are you excited for this at all? The, the Kyoto expansion is in three weeks. After that, we are opening test fields all over North Africa. And this is the, you did not have to recommend me for this. It seems unnecessary. We've been over this. Look, Mara, this mission, this is going to be a huge opportunity for us. It's just going to take a few months. That's it. You'll go out there. You'll help a few colonies with the next crop cycle, whatever it is. And then you'll be back here working on whatever you want. Like, I mean, yeah, you're going to have to do a few press rounds once you're back. But like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is just going to open so many doors for us. New projects, new contracts, new research. Things we can't even imagine now. Isn't that worth it? If I have to kiss one baby, it might destroy me. And she looks directly <laughs> at him. I need you to understand that. He says, none of that, but whatever you do, just make sure they know that you're with Genesynth. Mm-hmm. I think she'll she'll start um like walking towards the crowd of people. Yeah. Um and of course, uh like denoting individuals of seniority, um, be like, Oh, oh, you know, Nolan, he sure knows how to throw a party. Uh this wouldn't exist without him. And well, nothing of this would be here without him. We are all so very lucky for his presence in our lives. 
Yeah. I think like everyone starts applauding, right? Like kind mm-hmm. of that forced, I'm at a corporate event and I work mm-hmm. here and I have to clap applause. And then I think Nolan kind of like comes up and like grabs you from the side to get into like a photo pose next to the sort of perfectly positioned with the rocket cake and the yes. you know congratulations Mara banner in the background and, and you see kind of the um staff photographer lining up and then the uh the camera is kind of whited out by a flash of the camera. We see a large open room with the light from a row of tall windows traveling across the floor and onto an old-fashioned desk clock, which rests on a wooden shelf toward the back of the room. And as the camera pans to the right, we see a woman standing in front of a large brick wall with painting supplies in her hands. The paintbrush is almost dangling from between her fingers and her eyes narrow and sweep across the wall that has itself become her instrument. And whatever color the bricks were originally, that is now impossible to say because the wall's entire surface is covered with layers upon layers of paint. Haley, do you want to describe Leela for us? Yeah. So Leela is a young looking woman. She has medium brown skin, dark eyes, bright blue shoulder length hair. Um, Right now she is wearing some paint flecked jeans, kind of a loose white linen shirt that's also got some paint flecks on it. Um, And she's wearing some simple silver uh, earrings. But other than that, just kind of holding on to this paintbrush with a uh, pensive look on her face. Awesome. Well, to the right of Leela, we see another figure, um, and that is Mickey Adiemi, who is Leela's mentor and former instructor at the Sato Institute. She's tall, has dark skin, short cut hair, and a sort of inquisitive, pensive look, kind of like she's on the verge of solving some mystery that no one else in the room is even aware of. Mickey is also holding a paintbrush, and in front of her is a sort of abstract pattern of shapes uh, painted on another section of brick wall, um, most of which is still only covered in a uh, a base coat of white. But even as she lifts her brush up to add more to the wall, um, most of Mickey's attention seems focused on you, Leela. And she asks, so Leela, what are you painting today? Just another attempt at the same mural I've been painting. Well, uh, what about it are you working on in particular? Over to the left, you can see some wide expanses of sky, landscapes. But here, today, I'm thinking a bit smaller. Just got some, some just a single person here. I thought it made sense for us to meet here somewhere where you're comfortable. This mission, this will be the first time that you've left Earth, right? I mean, other than the field, the field trip to the moon that we took in, in school. But this will be, this will be the first time other than that. 
and um, but nowhere for this kind of length, right? Nowhere this far. I I suppose, yeah. And that doesn't have you concerned. I suppose it'll be a bit different, but it's just a just another planet. I think she kind of finishes adding a stroke to one of the shapes she's working on and kind of steps back from the the wall a bit to observe you working on the the figure that you're painting. And and can you describe that a little bit? Like what exactly are you are you working on in the in the mural? This additional person that you're adding? Yeah, so it's kind of um partially shadowed. So um you can only really see kind of half of the face um and right now it looks to be a female figure but um you know not sort of clear she's just kind of painting the outlines of of this kind of you know half in shadow um figure um so i think you know again mickey kind of steps back and she says leela the reason i chose you for this mission is because you're the best student i've had at least in a in a very long time your abilities, ever since we first met, I knew that you could change the Institute someday. But power alone, that's not enough when you're heading into the unknown. You also need people to lean on. Can I count on you, Leela, to count on me, to count on your friends? I... I do count on you, Mickey, but you won't be there with me. You'll be here, and I'll be weeks away, so I don't know who I'll be able to rely on out there. Well, you should know that if you need to reach out, no matter what time it is here, you can always call, and also... I'm sure that the people that you meet, your colleagues on this mission, they'll come to count on you too. And maybe you them? I suppose I don't know much about these other people who will be on the mission with me. I read the the briefings, but I've always I've always done well on my own. You know that. But even since you joined the Institute, we've worked together, right? We can keep that going? Even if it's a a little more long distance? I, of course, I'll I'll keep in touch and and keep you updated with with what I I can tell you. But it's it's not like I'll be working on cases you've assigned me, Mickey. It's it's going to be different. Different, for sure, but... I think it's a step that you're ready for. You'd agree, right? I'm ready. Good. Want to take another few minutes here? I'm really liking what you're doing with the shadows. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot of a lot more to fill in in the future. But I'll put some touches on it for now. So I think as you say that and kind of continue painting... 
the camera sort of slowly pans back and we see that old-fashioned desk clock still ticking away on the top of the wooden shelf to the left. But then all of a sudden, the shot changes and we're inside a modern minimalist office with a clean, unadorned desk and a series of large windows looking out into the sunset. And in front of the desk, at a small round table, we see Leela and Mickey sitting in two chairs, their eyelids closed, but their eyes rapidly moving within them, and with both of Mickey's hands resting in yours, Leela. And to the side of the table, we see a dark wood metronome, open and clicking. We see a man sitting in a chair stationed just outside of a plain-looking office. The office is the largest one we can see on this floor of the building, but even so, it's modest, utilitarian. The office's walls facing out into the hallway are a series of full-length windows, but at least for this office, the blinds are drawn closed. Mike, do you want to describe Arno for us at this point? Um, Arno is a very tall, very pale man. He's bald, um, and has these intense blue eyes. And what strikes you about Arno when you look at him is you're just so distracted looking at, um, his face, you're trying to catch details of his like features that sometimes you forget, like, do you see his hands? Are you paying attention? Is he taller than you remember? It's sort of hard to remember and hard to forget. And there are so few details that sometimes you like look at him and you look at him again and you're surprised to see the details still there or in that exact orientation or order. And it's not something he's trying to do. It's just passive feature on Arno, but he is always looking alert, uh, always looking at something, always has his eyes focused on something or another um, and very aware of his surroundings. Arno um, usually dresses in very muted uh, what I would call business professional colors, your dark navies, uh, maybe some black occasionally, that sort of thing, or something that's very mission appropriate, but he wears it close to his form, close to his figure, and uh, really tries not to put on anything that draws any more attention to himself than he already does. Yeah. So I think today, though, with you at headquarters, you're probably wearing the fleet uniform. Yeah. Um, and so sort of describing that, it's kind of this dark blue suit and the jacket has a kind of row of five bronze buttons going directly up the center, and it ends with like a straight collar that goes about an inch onto the neck. And in Arno's case, I guess it has the uh, bars of a lieutenant junior grade on his neck. Um, what in the hallway, or, or if you're sitting outside this office, what is Arno looking at if he's being uh, kind of constantly observant here what, what's he kind of waiting for him? doing the same thing he usually does in a waiting situation pretending to be distracted by something else he's got a magazine in front of him uh he's read just enough to be able to answer questions about an article if someone asked him what he was reading but not enough to care or follow up uh occasionally he turns a page skims a couple of lines to comment on it but really he's paying attention to the receptionist at the front of there waiting for them to give a signal that he needs to do something and then keeping an eye on the door seeing if there's something unexpected that he needs to react to yeah. 
and and the door you're sitting next to is so you're sitting next to this closed door of the office and just to the left of that door we see a nameplate and that says RADM Isabella Mendoza Fleet Special Operations Command so you received a message from Mendoza asking you to meet her this evening and it's already well past 8 p.m. Well, in a normal job, such a request might be strange um, or even frustrating. This is FSOC. Nothing about this job is normal. After a few more seconds of waiting, though, you hear voices and laughter as the door to the office opens. And um, a man and a woman in sort of civilian business suits walk out and uh, head down the hallway. And I think they kind of glance at you, but otherwise just continue along their way. And after a few more moments, you hear a familiar voice from inside the office say, come in, Lieutenant. Arno puts down the uh, magazine, uh, gives a curt nod to the receptionist at the front, and mm-hmm. enters the office. Um, excellent. So sitting at the desk is Admiral Isabella Mendoza, your commanding officer. She has pale skin, straight dark hair tied into a ponytail, ending just below her shoulders, and the slightest hint of wrinkles uh, forming at the corners of her dark brown eyes. Just like you, uh, Mendoza is wearing the standard fleet officer's uniform, but on her collar, there are two admiral stars on each side. But with the two visitors sort of already heading to the elevator, Mendoza is in the process of undoing the top two buttons of her jacket as she stands up from the chair, um, sort of frustratedly rubbing her forehead with her other hand. And uh, she turns to you and says, um, as the door kind of closes outside the office, Addie is lieutenant. Uh, anything to drink? No, ma'am. So she sort of gestures toward a chair in front of the desk and sort of waves you to take a seat. Um, and she walks over to a, a sort of hutch at the side and grabs a glass and pours uh, some kind of brown liquor from a glass decanter for herself and sort of slowly starts you know, still rubbing her head, maybe with her other hand, sort of meandering back to the desk. I think in this case, Arno doesn't feel the need to fill the silence or start any small talk over here. Uh, he's yeah. worked with the rear admiral long enough at this point to know that she'll start talking when she wants to. And, uh, you know, he can just wait it out. Yeah. So um, she kind of sits down. And I think I think you maybe see some like her kind of like wipe something off the slate on her desk that said something about like a budget review. Right. And she kind of like flicks that away. And kind of faces you and says, Lieutenant, what do you think of the Minerva project? Honest answer. Ma'am. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a ploy. Uh, I think it's uh, the operation to uh, save some face after uh, things haven't been going quite as swimmingly after the conclusion of the war. Hmm. Anything else? permission to speak freely of course it's propaganda short and sweet and uh, it's the mission to re-elect evelyn lee what what else is there to say about it good lieutenant effective tomorrow you are being detailed to the ministry of exploration and assigned as a crew member of the minerva project yes. officially you will no longer report to fsoc or to any other part of the fleet Though, of course, you are still expected to follow all requirements for off-duty officers, at least where they don't conflict with your orders from the project. Understood? Why? (laughs) Why? That's all you're going to (laughs) ask? She kind of chuckles to herself a little bit and says, 
Never thought you'd get shoved out of FSOC that easily, Lieutenant. Ma'am, permission to speak even more freely? <laughs> she laughs and says, uh, and, and just, she doesn't say anything. She just uh, kind of waves her hand at you as if to go ahead. Ma'am, I'm a covert operative. You are putting me in the most high profile situation imaginable. You are ending my career. I've done nothing wrong. I've performed ev- everything to the best of my abilities. Every mission has come out successful. We have a great rapport. Uh, and this is, quite frankly, uh, the most uncomfortable place in the world for me to be. So why am I being assigned to the Minerva Project? Well, she kind of leans back and has a little grin, I think, from having gotten a rise out of you, um, which she seems to enjoy. And she says, you're right that I have my reasons. Lieutenant, are you familiar with the name Morris Shaw? No. Shaw is a lifelong bureaucrat, worked his way through several ministries, always had a knack for kissing the right ass at the right time. Um, And at this point, she reaches across the desk and hands you a large glass slate, which is kind of the standard device for reading and communications in the late 23rd century. Um, And like many you've seen before, Arno, this slate is wrapped in an opaque folding cover that's kind of filled with a series of classification markings. Uh, What do you do? Uh, I'll open it. So as you open the cover and kind of tap on the slate to wake it, you see what looks like a standard intelligence dossier. The first page has a bunch of basic information, along with a picture of a middle-aged man with light skin, thinning short brown hair, and a stubble that's just starting to show hints of gray. But his most noticeable feature is his piercing blue eyes. Um, It almost feels like they're staring at you through the glass. And as you're looking at this slate, Mendoza continues, and she says... When President Lee took over, Shaw found his way onto the negotiating team for the armistice, started spending a lot of time out in the verge. After that, he was shuffled into the Ministry of Exploration and Development, where he stayed under the radar, low profile, just riding one desk job to the next. That was until nine months ago, when there was an off-calendar meeting in Montreal. The meeting included the president, a few political advisors, some technical folks, and Shaw. A few days later, Shaw gets himself a new title, director of something called the Minerva Project. But instead of doing press rounds or putting together a staff on Earth, Shaw hires himself a few assistants and holds up on Ascension Station out in the Verge. The pictures on that slate, those were taken on Ascension over the last four months. And as you kind of flip through the slate, you see pictures of Shaw moving down a street and walking through a narrow park, kind of constrained by the width of this city in space. Um, And Shaw is walking with an average gait, but in several of the frames, uh, we see him kind of looking back over his shoulder without really any context for why he's doing that. You then see him sitting down at a bench and in the next few shots, he reaches down and grabs something under his seat and then he's sticking his hand inside his coat pocket. While our surveillance was limited, we saw only one other person access that dead drop, a staff assistant at the Aventine Consulate. Do we know anything about them? Not much. She's relatively junior there, 
but could be working for anyone. What about Sean? Just what's in the dossier. Mm-mm. You know, this isn't enough to act on, not yet. But at this point, I have to consider that Shaw, and maybe others as well, have all been compromised. I'm counting on you to get to the bottom of this, figure out who else is involved, and bring back some hard evidence. Unofficially, of course. Ma'am, all due respect, I don't need to be assigned to babysitting detail for these high-profile mission-goers to get this job done. You can send me to a sensation without being a part of the Minerva project. I can get this done for you. If Shaw is involved and is doing something unsavory, you being on the mission might be the only thing that stands in the way from a full-fledged fiasco. You do this job, you get this done, you might be responsible for the future of the Republic. Ma'am? I'll take that drink now. The next morning, as planned... Uh, you're each greeted by a government car and escort there to take you to Montreal, or if you're already in Montreal, to take you to the specific location for your first full briefing on the Minerva Project. So what I want to turn over to the group and ask is who arrives first? But I want to note that this is not like a question about punctuality because you're all kind of being taken there, but just... Which of you thinks that you are the one that arrives first, even though you you kind of lack specific control over this? Uh, I think that the uh, commander would have made arrangements to make sure that uh, I had as few opportunities to find a way out of this mission as possible. And sort of like told me as the announcement was happening and then like kind of curated the rest of my evening and early morning to get me there to be like, great, you're at the mission now. Okay, so, yeah, so I guess you sort of get there. And after arriving in Montreal and and I I think I had. I don't know if we talked about this, but I think I had sort of cast FSOC headquarters as being in Tokyo just because it's like we're in a future where government offices can kind of be like all over the world, even though Montreal is kind of the capital just because it only takes like a few hours to to sort of get around the globe. But after arriving in Montreal, um, you are brought to a sort of nondescript government building Um, You're led down one level into the basement and into a large glass-walled conference room. So at the front of the room um, is a table, a podium, and a kind of large screen for presentations. And several rows of seats face the podium. Um, And then at the back of the room, there's a kind of row of tables with a coffee maker, um, several other drinks and kind of small glass bottles, and then a couple of sort of stands holding extra slates and styluses for taking meeting notes. Um, so that's kind of what you see when you walk into the room. Yeah, I think surveying just the offerings over here, Arno will take a notepad, a pen, uh, and a, a, a glass of water. Arno uh, does not drink coffee. Okay, to get the water. So who's the next to arrive? I'll say that... Um, I'm, I'm not claiming next to arrive, but I will say that I think Mara put off getting in the shuttle as long as possible 
to finish up on the work that she was planning on doing the night before, but got Mm. intercepted by the whole party that she was strong-armed into attending. So maybe it's not Mara's, is not the next one that comes Yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. If anyone really feels strongly that they're going to show up last, then by all means, but I think Mara will show up last. Yeah, I'm fine later as well. I'll say this. I think that um, Nasir is definitively, I'm not going to be last okay. um, because they would look suspicious. But I think that I was in political meetings in the building, uh, specifically a meeting with like my particular handler. Okay. Um, and then I show up without them, but like far enough before the briefing starts that it doesn't look like I'm in the know in any way because I'm not really. So what I think happens is that Nasir, hearing that, I think that Nasir, you kind of get there expecting to be the first person there and you kind of open the door and like, Ar- what is Arno, Ar- Arno, what are you doing in the room when Nasir kind of slowly opens the door and tries to like come in without you know thinking he's the first one there? Pretending to take notes until somebody else comes in at that okay. point. I've got the uh, the dossier at this point, like committed to memory. I'm not reviewing any notes. I wouldn't have those on me in case I ever got misplaced or something to that effect. I'm just watching to see what's happening next. Yeah. So yeah, you. Mike, op- yes, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Mike, was your real name was or, or was Arno Hines the name that was announced uh, with the announcement? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I I think then as I walk in, if you're sitting there taking notes, are you sitting in like a chair? Yeah, uh, close to the head of the table, just at the front of the room, close to a projector type situation. I will come and I will sit. Um, at the seat on like your, on your left side. Uh, and I will immediately introduce myself and I was like, hi, no, no, uh, before you even sit down, I'll, I'll raise up to go and shake your hand at that point. I'm, uh, I think much like you for a second over here. And this is something I'm very excited for. Um, Arno can also put on a face at this point. Uh, and maybe the smile doesn't quite reach his eyes and it's not quite as polished, but like Arno can exude warmth without making you feel like he's warm towards you, if that makes sense. And that's a really important distinction here is like, he's not excited to see you but he just seems like a warm person and for whatever reason that warmth it doesn't quite cross the table for some reason so i will i'll sit i'll stand right there i'll shake your hand and i'll just be like uh hello you must be arno yes nasir pleasure to meet you very excited to be working with you on this mission uh it's i'm it's gonna be a good time we're gonna uh spend a, a lot of time together i i think we're gonna be spending a tremendous amount of time together uh did you manage to get here right are you from montreal do you normally uh, come in. Uh, I, sorry, I'm terrible uh, at small talk here. I'm not the. You, but I suppose you must totally be practiced fine. at it by now. You're you're totally fine. Um, I'm I'm not from uh, Montreal. I'm originally from Cairo. Um, but I've uh, I've been living here for uh, since the administration started. Oh wow, regular celebrity. Well, uh, you know, it's a pleasure uh, getting to know you. I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to to get to know each other. But um, I'm just taking some notes over here, and um, you know, I'm sure we'll. Get, have plenty of time to get to know each other. Uh, of course. Uh, and I will <laughs> yeah. uh, grab my, as, as this is like a sort of awkward, quick standing introduction. I'll sort of take my, I, my seat um, and I will like smile at Arno. So I like smiling and it is, it is like a warm smile. It does reach my, like it is a full, like I, it, I'm very practiced at this. <laughs> and so like, it is a full sincere smile. I'll offer a quick smile back and nod my head and then back to my notes. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of like in the again in the kind of TV version of this is a lot of like long, super awkward pauses of like the two of you sitting here and, mm-hmm. you know, to see you uh, 
sitting there like smiling back and i don't know <laughs> kind of at, at a certain it. point i'll get up and i'll go grab like a glass of water and uh, i'll make myself an iced coffee of some kind yeah perfect um i think at that that's the point that leela you walk into the room also um i think leela would have wanted to time it so that she walks in like just a few minutes before the briefing's supposed before the appointed time and so even if kind of her car got there early she was just like cool and then she kind of just like took a walk or something and just like was just like okay i'm gonna show up just as just as time gotcha um so i'm just gonna kind of walk in and uh without really surveying the room just kind of walk in and, and grab a seat on the opposite side of the table from uh from Nasir and Arno and just say good morning good morning Leela pleasure to meet you I'm Lieutenant Arno Hines yes good morning uh, Nasir Baydock it's a, it's a pleasure absolutely so are you excited about the the mission yeah it's uh it's quite a big deal. Uh, have you ever been to Ascension Station before? No, no. Should be, should be interesting. What about you? Uh, in in no, uh, it, the station wasn't uh, quite uh, as operational as it is now. Uh, the last time I was out in the Verge, um, I'm I'm excited to to see sort of all the amazing things that we've done. Yeah. Should be should be quite a trip. Oh, it's going to be a grand old time, I'm sure. And then I think Leela just kind of leans back um in her chair, kind of realizes that she didn't grab a uh notepad or anything and just kind of commits to it and just continues to, to <laughs> lean back and and just kind of like wait for <laughs> wait Excellent. for something to start. So I think at this point, it's kind of like right when the briefing is supposed to start and, and Mara, you're like entering the room, mm-hmm. you know, as if you were late. And I don't know if it's like that the other people that were trying to get you there are stressed, but there's some, you know, there's some kind of thing going on. But yeah, the door opens up and you're mm-hmm. there. Well, hello, uh, everyone. Um, Mr. Hines, Mr. Badak, Miss Malik. It's is such a pleasure to meet all of you. I apologize for my tardiness. I had a few things to finish up in Ireland, um, but I am so very excited to begin this interplanetary journey with all of you. She's like definitely trying to appear warm and approachable, um, but is uh, a little flustered on being late and uh, a little resigned to her fate. So I think that she will take a seat and start kind of unpacking her briefcase, which, of course, has all the dossiers and files necessary, notepads, different colored pencils or pens, whatnot, and uh, just uh, start setting up. Sorry, I, I was just going to I'm going to assume that Mara is somewhat close to, to Leela. Assuming it's not a yeah, huge she's table. like what she sat down like two chairs here, right, so that okay. she could orient her body. That you guys, she's like facing all of you at once, essentially. 
Okay, I'm going to lean over. Once I see all the stuff she pulls out, I'm just going to lean over and be like, can I borrow a, a notepad? A, a notepad? A pen? Of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, that'd be great. She's going to hand yes. her. I'm going to yeah. lean over to Mara. I'm going to offer a very warm smile. And just like, oh, early morning jitters. That uh, wouldn't be the emotions that I'm feeling right now. Um, but excitement is somewhere. Somewhere, I'd say, Mr. Hines. I feel that way about government briefings all the time. I, I totally understand you. Mm-hmm. Of course. So I think at this point, someone kind of knocks on the door, um, which opens just as like a courtesy. And the door opens to reveal a man with pale skin and light hair. Um, he's wearing a suit, maybe in his mid-30s. And he says, um, just wanted to let you know that the briefing will begin shortly. Uh, if you could please take your seats. Achieved. Well, as you can see, we're all seated, so when, whenever you're ready. Yep. He's like, okay, yeah, and he kind of shuts the door. Leo's just going to kind of say, so you all are used to government briefings, I suppose? Uh, More or less. I, I actually work in this building. So sometimes you're giving the briefings? N- never. Um, but, uh, I, I am, uh, present, uh, with relative frequency. Sometimes they're less than, uh, uh, briefings, the more like longings, if you will. (laughs) Uh, Nasir chuckles politely. Mo fucking (laughs) (laughs) I need everyone to understand that, um... Mara is, she has her hands clasped tightly together and she will occasionally rotate so that her left is dominant over her right and her right is dominant over her left. And she'll like count off with her fingers. One, Mm. two, three, one, and then rotate. One, two, three, rotate. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Lula's just going to raise an eyebrow at the (laughs) longings comment. Yeah. And, uh, and just sit there. I'm going to just offer a chortle and, uh. (laughs) I don't have to be an indexer to know you'd rather be anywhere but here. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. when you say that, you all hear like a faint buzzing sound start. And almost immediately, the glass walls that kind of surround this conference room, they all like fog up and become totally opaque. And if anyone was like looking at their comms, you would see that the signal totally went dead. Now, at least for Arno, and probably not for Nasir, um, I don't think that this phased you. Mara, this might be a little bit higher level than what you've uh, normally even been called in for. I think she, she probably lifts her brow. Yeah. Um, and kind of a few seconds later, the door at the back opens again. And then uh, you see five figures walk into the room. Most you've never seen before, but toward the back of the group, you all immediately recognize one of the new arrivals and that is evelyn lee the president of the republic uh it's seeing the commander in chief arno obviously stands up and offers a salute yeah i think she like neatly returns the salute to you does anyone else stand or do anything i think mara also stands and says oh president lee yeah uh i'll uh sort of nod and wave politely uh with like a very short wave and just say madam president Mm -hmm. so she kind of starts walking toward the front of the room, but um, stops by Nasir 
and puts a hand on your shoulder and she kind of gives you it's very brief but she gives you this almost concerned half smile um it's sort of like she's glad to see you but wishes that it prefer any other reason and then after a moment she continues to the podium and turns to face the four of you Erno's still standing um she i think gestures for you to take your seat all right What you're about to hear is possibly the most classified piece of information on this planet. If released, it would almost certainly cause war in the Verge and could seriously threaten the survival of the Republic. If any of you are unwilling to take on this responsibility, now is the time to tell me. At this point, Nasir's eyes sort of go wide. Um, but nothing else about his demeanor changes even a little bit, but like, it's very clear that this is not information that he was expecting. Yeah. And he wasn't expecting to be surprised. I think it's not information that any of you were expecting. Yeah. I think, I think Mara is like, opens her mouth to begin, but just can't finish the protest. Yeah. Um, she continues then says, thank you. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Sen, Chief of Astrophysics for the Ministry of Science. Doctor, would you explain your findings? Uh, and fr- from the side of the room, uh, from that group of four that accompanied the president, you see someone walk to the podium with light tan skin, a sharp chin, and short dark hair, uh, sort of mid-length pixie cut, but dyed copper towards the end. They're wearing a dark blue suit with a white collared shirt and they have a uh, a lanyard with a government id badge around their neck um but they they walk up to the podium and begin uh th- thank you president lee um madam president right um so you see dr sen kind of messing with the controls for the slides on the screen behind them uh but you see kind of quickly flip through a bunch of slides with tables of data but as the progression of slides kind of slows and then finally stops you see a uh, a graph appear uh, that has a smooth, slightly downward sloping line near the top of the screen. Contramatter matrices, uh, what most people call lustra, um, they, they have an expected rate of decay over time, caused by interactions between the matter and contramatter particles within the matrix. Unless the contramatter is refined, that is, isolated from the matrix, The uh, individual particles will eventually merge with standard matter and can no longer be used to support fast and light travel. Under normal circumstances, this rate of decay is, well, well, it's it's very long. Um, Looking to our past mining activities as a benchmark, we would expect to extract almost all of the known luster deposits in the Verge uh, well before there is any meaningful decay. The, uh, The chart on the screen behind me shows this expected path. Over the past two years, my team conducted a series of gravitational observations of the Verge. The, the purpose was to determine the concentration of lustra among various systems, uh, part of a, uh, a cross-ministry effort to assess their astropolitical significance within the region. Uh, this graph shows the results of that study. And back on the screen, you see a new line appear that kind of reaches out below the first, 
Um, and this line repeatedly falls toward the bottom of the screen in a series of sharp cliffs. By backcasting the number of new events, uh, these anomalies that we've measured, and then comparing that to the expected rate of decay, our predictions uh, suggest a significant disruption to extraction operations within the next five years and the end of viable contramatter sources within another 10 years after that. While I'd defer to other experts on the political consequences, without Lustra from the Verge and with resources in our own system rapidly depleting, well, if we're unable to stop these anomalies, the Verge will lose economic viability, and unless we find a replacement source of Lustra, interstellar travel will eventually become impossible. At this point, Evelyn Lee kind of edges her way back to the podium, and she says, Simply put, the Verge is dying. And your mission, the true mission of the Minerva Project, is to find out why and to stop it. I know this is a lot, but if you have any questions, please go ahead. Um, Madam President, uh, uh, who would benefit from from the the decay of Lustra? No one on Earth or in the Verge would be able to to go anywhere. This is this is dooming for half of humanity. The locations of these anomalies, so far they've been concentrated within particular systems of the Verge, including some limited effects in the Aventine system. Because of that, the current pattern could end up benefiting some parts of the Verge over others, uh, but it's as of now unclear when or even if these events are going to stop. I haven't exactly kept up with my astrophysics over the years. Shouldn't there be some kind of lustra expert on this mission, as opposed to us? You'll have experts available to you on Earth, including Dr. Sen here, and we can send additional people to Ascension Station if needed. But based on what we know so far, the cause is unlikely to be related to the physics of the lustra itself. We recruited a crew with your backgrounds because, well, we think you have the best skills to figure out what's causing this. And it also happens that you're the least likely to raise suspicions, especially given the limited number of Lustra experts out there. So throughout this, Mara has been like furiously taking notes. Um, and she looks up and she says, can you describe what is happening to the broad ecology as a whole in these locations? Or is this exclusively something that's happening to the Lustra deposits? Uh, I think uh, presently let's Dr. Sen take this one um, and they say as of yet we've not identified any broader astroecological effects um, at least nothing that would rise to a, a planetary scale um, that, that said our survey was uh, necessarily limited we were conducting a gravitational study and everything else is based on relatively anecdotal reports uh, and so while we haven't found any evidence of this that doesn't mean there isn't evidence to be found. And Evelyn Lee kind of adds in, that was specifically why we wanted someone with your expertise on this mission. That does make sense. Madam President, who else 
has access to this information? I'm nodding my head as Arno asks that question. I've kept access to this information extremely limited. Just my closest advisors and the Minerva Project team, uh, most of whom are already on Ascension Station. It's our belief that if knowledge of these anomalies became widespread, the value of the Verge's remaining lustra would skyrocket, enough that fighting over what's left would become inevitable. I'm counting on the four of you to help prevent that bloodshed. Understood. Thank you, ma'am. Just three days ago, Dr. Sen and their team began detecting another of these anomalies in the Verge. This one from the Constas system. After a brief orientation, the rest of your training will take place on the way to Constas. I know this isn't what you expected, but this is the mission you were chosen for, and you were chosen for a reason. Those of us who know it's at stake, me and my team, all of us believe in you, and we'll all have your back as well. Your ship is scheduled to leave within the week. For now, good luck to each of you, and to the entire Minerva Project. Godspeed. Godspeed.